What gives a person influence? Success? Maybe, but success alone only gives limited influence. A person of true influence can go deeper than that. Daniel, a prophet in the Old Testament, was successful as a leader, but it was his substance that gave him an audience with the king himself. Success certainly opened a door, but it was his character, attitude, and discernment that set him apart. Daniel knew which battles were worth fighting, and his value of choosing faithfulness over success gave him influence in his society to change people's lives, including kings. Good morning. Do you have any favorite karate or kung fu movies? If you're honest with yourself, you have one. <laughs> so I remember watching them on TV, and at the end of the show or during a commercial, um, I needed to jump out of my chair and kick and punch my way to victory. My earliest memories are from the show Kung Fu with David Carradine. This is where we might get the reference of a young person being called Grasshopper. Grasshopper. When you can grab this pebble from my hand, it'll be time for you to leave. The student becomes the master. Other martial arts movies have come out since that time. Um, we have the Kung Fu Panda series. That's right. We have the Matrix series. Uh, Jackie Chan, he threw a little bit of comedic effort into there with uh, Rumble in the Bronx, Shanghai Noon, or Rush Hour. And then Jet Li, uh, champion in China, gave us Hero and Fearless, which is interesting. The Fearless title comes from Lao Tzu. Mastering others is strength. Mastering yourself makes you fearless. There are definitely others. There are definitely others in the mix today. But I think the real winner of all martial arts movies might have to be The Karate Kid. All right. Now, that comes from 1984, just to be clear. Uh, Daniel LaRusso, New Jersey boy, moves to California. He gets into some high school trouble with bullies and then befriends Mr. Miyagi. Now, Daniel LaRusso just wants to learn karate to kick some Cobra Kai butt. But, <laughs> I said butt twice. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi puts him through work painting fences and, and waxing cars. It all works out, though. The, face, the fence painting, the, the car waxing, it's all connected to giving Daniel the framework, the trellis with which to build his karate journey. How does it end? Well, after, after Daniel gets his leg viciously swept, this injured Daniel in the final round of the karate tournament delivers the crane kick to the face of his arch nemesis, Johnny. He goes off into the sunset like a hero, girl on his arm, successful in his journey. I hear, yeah, wow, that's the equivalent of an amen, my goodness. <laughs> a hero's departure, going into the sunset, trophy in hand, being lifted on people's shoulders, successful with the endeavor that he set his mind to. 
and we experience some of those same triumphs and successes in another Daniel, in the book of Daniel. We've been in the book of Daniel for a number of months now, and we've heard a number of times about his successes. Our ushers have Bibles. As they're walking, feel free to grab one if you need one for today. You will need one from my perspective. If you didn't bring your own, take one of theirs. While they're doing that, let's look at some of the successes we've already heard about. Daniel 1. Daniel rejected the king's food. He took that plate and he pushed it away and challenged the leaders of the empire by declaring that his diet was better. And it was put to a test. And again, we get a hero's exit. Daniel and his friends were healthier and they looked better and they were elevated in the eyes of witnesses. Daniel 3, we had a human barbecue with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I also believe we have a Christophany in the furnace. They walked out of the furnace not even smelling like smoke. Daniel 6, Daniel is thrown into a den of lions for praying. And there are some beautiful things from this text, some things I am just connecting with in my life. More than ever, I'm noticing how people have a direction of prayer or a time of prayer. Daniel faces Jerusalem during one of his three fixed times of prayer. What do you face when you pray? Do you have fixed times of prayer? Those are questions I've been asking myself. Um, Daniel is thrown in the den and makes it through the night to walk out into the sunrise unharmed. And this is where I want to transition to a bigger picture. Hebrews 11. Some call this chapter the hall of faith. It's on page 1131 of the church Bible. It's in the last pinch of pages towards the back of the Bible, right before James, Peter, John, Jude, and Revelation. It's just the last pinch. Hebrews 11. Find your way there, please. Put your hand there, and then please join me in prayer. Blessed Lord, who calls all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast that blessed hope of everlasting life whom we find in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So I'm going to be reading through Hebrews 11, almost all of it. Follow along in your Bible or consider doing this. As I read, consider writing down the names of the people you hear. A lot of names are in Hebrews 11. You could just just listen for the names and write them down. Once you have that list, survey it, and maybe circle one or two names of the people that you don't know their story. You don't know why they would be listed here. And why do we do this? It's for your own study. If the names don't bring up a little bit in you, it's a great opportunity. These are names that were listed in this scripture, in Hebrews 11, and these are names that that are there for a reason. The narrative of their life was already known to the original readers of Hebrews. Already known. I think as modern day readers, we forget because they're not really our people. It's not really our story. But these names are here. So for your own study, consider writing down some of those names. Follow along with me. Hebrews 11. 
I'm going to start in verse 8 and read through 34. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man... And he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your, that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, The people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again.
Did you spot Daniel? Let's stop here for a moment because we just blew through a character we've been reading about. Let me paraphrase Hebrews 11, 31 and 30, 32 through 33. I do not have time to tell you about these people I am naming and some that I will not even name. Daniel doesn't even make it by name. He isn't important enough to be listed by name. Only by description. Lions' mouths being shut and flames of fury quenched. This whole section of scripture is pretty rah-rah. It's a cheerleader for the faith. It can be read like a list of who's who of Bible characters and those that were successful. Parts of the text connect on some deeper level, some deeper items, some sorrow, some difficulty. My experience is that it's been read as a battle cry for success. Kind of a, they didn't fully inherit what God had promised, but they were still a little successful. And more and more, I don't, I don't buy this common American religious narrative of success. I've heard it for decades. I still hear it. I've taught it. I've grown less and less comfortable with it. And it's not the scripture I'm uncomfortable with. It's an interpretation of it all through the removal of the rest of Scripture. I have a problem with success. And dare I say, you have a problem with success, a word that does not appear in the New Testament. If you were introduced to someone as successful, what does that mean? Think of a couple words, just a couple words to define this. And please be honest, we're in church. And if you want, whisper maybe one or two of the words to someone next to you that you know. Some of my words. Wealthy. Or being rich. Winner. You want to win things, which is kind of funny because a number of weeks ago um, I preached and DJ Khaled makes it again into my sermon. All I do is win, win, win no matter what. Got money on my mind. I can never get enough. It's there. It's everywhere. We hear this. Another word, powerful. A more tempered word we like to use, it's softer, is influence. And influence can be good, but success to us often means power. And I thought of one more, popular. We want to be liked. We want to be well-liked. So those are four words, and how do you define success then? I made a definition. Success is when we complete the project of making our lives the way we want them to be. It's based on these four words. Success is when we complete the project of making our lives the way we want them to be. What do you want your life to be? You want to be rich, a winner, powerful, and popular. 
This is an idol we all must face. It is our idolatry of success. It is completely idolatrous to assume we will be successful, successful defined by our Western desires and hopes and dreams of going off into the sunset, elevated for our faith. We've talked about spiritual warfare the last couple of weeks. And I believe there is spiritual warfare that exists for us that uses our idolatry of success as a veil. It hides something. This veil hides a more honest, a more authentic look at the journey we might be on. It is because of this veil that we have the prosperity gospel, a gospel that is health and wealth, personal success-driven, sugar-coated, cotton candy sweet, and void of the suffering that is normal in our day. Success is an idol, and it's a particularly U.S. idol. We are enamored with success. And when we are so enamored with success, it becomes our idol. We follow that idol, and it leads us astray. We have elevated success to be equal to faithful. And this is what gets between us and when we read Scripture. We miss the hardships of Daniel. A young teenager taken from his expected life because of war, forced into different education, diet changed, his life repeatedly threatened. I've never had my life threatened that I can remember. So if you've emailed me, forgive me in this moment. I imagine it's a pretty intense moment and it can be quite the emotional trip. Daniel had some responsibility. He had 120 people that had to answer to him. Those 120 people, they didn't like him. And then even in times of his own faithfulness, a simple faithfulness, the king he serves turns it into a reason to kill others. His faithfulness influenced legal changes and punishments that ended the lives of other children, women, and men. There's a moment in Karate Kid where the antagonist, Johnny, is told to Sweep the leg. No mercy. Take him out. What if the movie ended right there? Johnny sweeps his leg. Daniel crumples to the mat. Credits roll. The movie would feel a little bit different, wouldn't it? I don't think it would be as popular if Daniel lost the karate tournament. I mean, the Karate Kid Part 2 has him go to Japan where he wins a match. The Karate Kid Part 3 follows a similar model of Daniel winning the match in the end. You don't build a movie trilogy on a model of someone failing. The U.S. doesn't tend to do that. But these things do influence how we read Scripture and hear Scripture. Let's listen to the remainder of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 35 to 12, 2. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think these things have influenced us in a way where we miss some of the story of Daniel, but we also miss the story of Jesus. Jesus experienced failure. We are programmed through some of our faith, heritage, and culture that Jesus was a success. When Jesus came to the end of his life, we skip key parts and we jump right to Easter and hallelujah, he is risen. But we miss his faithful path. We ignore his failure. Jesus was a failure. I know that sounds a little bit inflammatory. Stick with me. His failure is a beautiful illustration of faithfulness. Hebrews 12.3 Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Failure plays a bigger role than we want to admit. I want to tell you a story. Uh, feel free to close your eyes if that helps you. There was this guy, not part of any aristocracy or major corporation. He was a, a peasant, really. A peasant that knew his sacred poetry. God, brilliant yours. Brilliant Lord, yours is a beautiful name. Nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. Toddlers shout the songs that drown out enemy talk and silence atheist babble. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? This peasant poet also preached. Around the age of 30, a young guy, he began to preach and to announce that the reign and rule of God was now coming among people. A new kingdom, God's kingdom was coming and was a kingdom of love and peace. This young peasant, poet, preacher, started teaching these things. He also had a gift that changed the trajectory of people he touched. Shriveled hand. Healed. Constant, continual hemorrhaging. Healed without even trying. Blind since birth. He gave the man color. These behaviors, these teachings, caused him to amass a great following especially in the rural areas, the areas that connected with his heritage and his past. These were his people. 
He told stories that turned the current kingdom upside down. He cast out demons from those that were being oppressed. And he announced that God was breaking into this world with a new order. Over a couple years, this, this movement grew. It was kind of like many of the church stories we hear. A small group of people began gathering in an upstairs room to share life together. And within a few short years, a more permanent location was needed. This became thousands of followers. Then he started saying things that were controversial. Really controversial. And his popularity started to dip. His preaching challenged the rich and the poor alike. But most people left. Some of the really committed ones, they stuck it out. But the big movement, the big popular movement that he had in his early years, his glory days, was gone. His popularity was gone. Even with the loss of popularity, officials were concerned about what he was still continuing to say. Religious officials and political officials. They started keeping closer tabs on him. There was this one big holiday week during the year where people from the countryside would pour into the capital city, and it was a great time for this man to make a statement. His remaining followers agreed. They thought it would be a great reboot, a place to rally some support for the movement. It worked. People were excited again. But by the end of the week, it was over. He was arrested towards the end of the week. And those that remained with him through those less popular times at this point faded into the shadows. There were two courts that tried him after his arrest. A religious court and a criminal court. The religious court convicted him of heresy, blasphemy. The criminal court convicted him of treason, which is an attempt to overthrow the government. His sentence was execution. At the height of his three-year ministry, he had upwards of 10,000 followers, 10,000 people. And at his execution, his mother, some relatives, and one disciple. Once it's determined he's dead, he's buried that Friday. This is a retelling, a part of the Jesus story. It's not the total story. It's part of the story. The movement Jesus had started, seeing great success at points, had fizzled out. And the end wasn't pretty. Two of Jesus' closest friends, one betrayed him, sold him out. The other acted like he didn't even know him. And in the end, what did Jesus have to show? That Friday, what did he have to show? He was a carpenter. Maybe he had some woodwork he had done that he passed on to his family. And really, if it can't be used or sold, it could fuel a fire. When we imagine our own success, how we have defined a successful life, does this portrayal of Jesus support that idea of success? If 
Failure plays a bigger role than we want to admit. Don't you already know this, though? Don't you know this? Looking back on your failures, consider how you became different, better, redeemed through that failure. It's a pattern we experience in this life. Pastor Tony made a reference to Hallmark movies last week after watching his first one of the season. He said, Hallmark movies end with a kiss every time. It's got the same plot for just about every movie. Thinking about it, can you see a repeated pattern in Scripture? It is death, burial, and resurrection over and over and over again. It is the theme of the Bible. I wrote down those names, that same um, homework alternative I gave you about writing down the list of names and circling those that you didn't know. I did the same thing, and um, I decided to list some of their failures. Listen to their failures, just some of them. Abraham, he was called the father of faith, the father of generations of people, and he didn't have any kids. What a cruel message. The father of nations, but childless. Jacob, nobody liked Jacob. The story of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob steals his brother's birthright. Joseph is listed. Joseph was a slave for a while. He was betrayed by his brothers. Moses. Moses was a 40-year failure in the wilderness. And David. Just read his psalms. He writes of slimy pits, pits of despair, pits of destruction because of the failures he encountered. Hebrews 11 goes on, includes the general work of the prophets. So I chose one, a big one, Elijah, the mighty prophet, the one that called down fire from heaven and defeated the prophets of Baal. He ran away. He was afraid. He went a day's journey into the wilderness, sat under a shrub, and prayed to die. But all these stories follow a similar plot of death, burial, and resurrection. We think we are the exception. What do we do then? Things that can be here today and gone tomorrow provides a precarious mooring for the soul. Our truest identity can never be something we accomplish, earn, or prove on our own. And we must detach from those and anchor someplace else. Our truest identity is a gift we receive from Jesus. It is not something we earn through performance. It is what we are given. Scripture tells us that we are beloved children of God, friends of Jesus, the temple of God, God's work of art, and fearfully and wonderfully made. This is our truest self. We are not defective failures. We experience failure, and we are treasured by the Lord of the universe. And that is why we can feel good about ourselves. But idols, idols vie for our attention. 
So I always suggest name the idol. Name it. Success. Naming the idol gives us more ability to detach from that idol and attach ourselves to our true identity in Christ. Beloved children of God, friends of Jesus, the temple of God, God's work of art, and fearfully and wonderfully made. Detachment from the idols of our heart can be a really painful process. But God's spirit of truth longs to help us detach from the lies that have shaped us. Lies perpetuated by our own nation and our own culture. Christ followers are not called to success. They are called to be faithful. The question I've been asking myself as I've reflected on this is, could my posture in this world be a more crucified life than a consuming one? That question hits me. Maybe you want to borrow my question. Help yourself to it. In our closing song, I would challenge you to reflect on what might stand in your way of knowing or following Jesus. Name it. Invite Jesus to more deeply teach you about staking your identity on him, whether or not it makes you wealthier, helps you win more, gives you more power, or makes you more popular. To your left, we have people under the cross that would love to pray with you. If you would like to name an idol with them, let them stand with you in that. I would also be happy to pray with anybody here. So sisters and brothers, since we stand surrounded by all of those that have gone before, an enormous cloud of witnesses... Let us drop every extra weight, every sin, every idol that clings to us and slackens our pace. And let us run with endurance the long race set before us. Stay focused on Jesus who designed and perfected our faith. He endured the cross and ignored the shame of that death because he focused on the joy that was set before him and now is seated beside God the Father, a place of honor. In the same way, let us also focus on the race ahead. Go into the days of the week, cruciform in posture, faithful to a kingdom of love and peace, strong in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and confident that God goes with you in your failures.